All right, we're ready whenever you are. In two and one. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the Association of Common Sense Masculinity is proud to present the exciting, the thought-provoking Can-Am Soup, an entertaining, genuine, and often meandering conversation between two friends. And now, the stars of our show, Jeremy Gertz and Todd Fuss. How's it going, Todd? All right, Jeremy. How you doing, man? Oh, really good. Really good. We just uh, came back from a little ski vacation, so, um, you know, you feel like mentally refreshed and kind of like, ah, you feel good, but physically, <laughs> I'm recovering. <laughs> Get a little beat up yeah. in my old age trying to do what I used to do when I was younger. Yeah, I know you were up there with the family, and I also know you're not this kind of guy, but any snow bunnies walking around up there? No, no, no. You know what is sweet about this is I'm sure it's busy on the weekends, but I would say you you look at the chairlifts going up the hill. The only one in five had a person or people on them. Like I have, I don't know if I've skied a hill that dead before, which is awesome. I mean, you pay your money for your ticket. You don't want to be standing in line, right? You want to use the the facilities that you're paying for. And we not once did we have to wait for people in front of us in line. So, and every chairlift was open. A lot of hills, when they're uh, not very busy, they'll shut down certain lifts. But man, every single one. And this is weird because, um, you know, when a hill's not busy, usually they'll have one person at a lift and they'll like scan your little tag, bleep, and then they'll help you onto the chair. They had six people at every lift. So there's people, I don't know what to do. They sit around chat, you know, <laughs> a bunch of ski bums. But, you know, didn't notice any of uh, the ski bunnies or, uh, really anybody else. It was pretty sweet. It's just, it felt like it was just us most of the time. Yeah. I don't miss that, um, whole scene. Uh, I like what you're, what you're, uh, describing is, uh, empty. If I'm going to go do something out in public for fun, um, I don't ski, but if I skied, if you go to an amusement park, you know, anything like that, because I hate, one, I hate a bunch of people anyway. Two, mm-hmm. you do something like that, and you wait in line forever, then you get on whatever you're going to do, like uh, uh, an amusement park ride or a roller coaster or a ski lift, and it's just coated with human grease. You're like, ew, <laughs> yeah. this is gross. That's why I hate mm-hmm. uh, public transportation, you know, because you can't yeah. touch anything that's not got caked with human grease. You're like... This is gross. Yeah. Or the freaks. You know, it's, yeah. it's interesting because I was, I was talking to my wife on the way back. We were driving home and I said, you know what? When I kind of look back at the way we've kind of set up our lives over the last 10 years, um, and I don't think we ever thought about it and consciously did it, but we have definitely set ourselves up to kind of be the opposite of what the majority of people do. So, you know, like the ski trip, it's like, okay, we could have gone on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but instead we went on a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And everybody else, you know, when we were driving up there on Sunday afternoon, steady stream of cars coming back to Calgary, just like car, 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 car. Every one of them has a Thule roof rack and, you know, or ski rack on the top. And then we get there and the hotel's empty and we get the ski hill and it's empty. And well, right now, this is Friday morning we're recording. 
I bet there's a whole line of people driving out to that ski hill and all this weekend it's going to be so busy. We've we've kind of always done that uh, when we do like little, you know, say we're going to go to Banff for a couple days. We always go in the middle of a week because it's dead, you know, and um, we've sort of, when I look at it and like I say, it wasn't a choice, but we have set our lives up. Like, I mean, we've homeschooled our kids for years, um, probably like eight years we've been homeschooling. Um, since I got laid off at Sanjel, which was what, six years ago or something like that, I've, I've been self-employed and my wife is self-employed. Like we both work from home. Neither of us have to leave, even with this whole COVID thing, you know, it, it changed everybody's world and their daily routines. Ours didn't change at all. I mean, obviously things change, go to the grocery stores, different and stuff like that. But, um, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I'm kind of glad that we've done it. I wish I could take more credit and say like, yeah, that was an intentional thing, but I really enjoy it. And I was talking to the kids about that too. I was like, you notice how we don't do like, you know, I mean, kids are going to school this morning and you're going skiing. It's kind of fun. You know, it's kind of interesting that, that you can have it. You, and we talk, we're talking with the kids about this. I said, you get to choose how you live your life. You know, you don't have to do the nine to five. You don't have to do what most everybody else else on earth does. And there's benefits to it. There, there may be things you miss about it. Like there's certain times where I do miss working with people like I enjoyed the guys that I worked with at Sanjil and, and you know you get the shop humor and you goof around stuff like that I don't get any of that right I mean um so it's definitely trade-offs but I was just thinking about it's kind of interesting that we've uh set our lives up that way <clears throat> yeah uh, it didn't it didn't affect us at all except for um Danette started teleworking instead of going into work that was the only yeah. change for us and you know, then having to wear a mask, but in my other job, I had to wear a mask every once in a while anyway. Uh, yeah, but it was yeah. a gas mask, and believe me, cloth is a whole lot more comfortable. I imagine. Because, uh, you know, yeah. those old uh, uh, Cold War era gas masks, they suck, mm. and you wear them for days on end. Uh, you can take it off, wow. and you got this. Um, puffer fish face for the next two days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. And then you get people freaking yeah. out because um, they put on a mask and then they get uh, uh, feeling all closed in, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, That's funny. it's a mask. We didn't lock you in a closet. Yeah. When I uh, when I lived in, in Moscow, the place that we were in had... Well, I think every place has a, a basement, but these basements were set up as bunkers, a lot of them. And it was all locked up. You're, you're not supposed to be able to get in, but we found a way. And you go in there and there's just boxes and boxes and boxes of these gas, gas masks. And so it was set up that, you know, everybody that lived in this apartment building, if something happened, they can all go into the basement. And it was deep down, like it was supposed to be a bomb shelter. And then they had these masks. And so we'd go out there and hang out there every now and then it was really, really creepy. Like there's no lights down there and it's all, you know, puddles of water and is eerie, but I ended up stealing one of these masks and I brought it home <laughs> and, uh, I had it until we left Strathmore when we, when we moved out here. And I think I was going through my stuff and I was like, yeah, I'll just throw this away. I'll never use it. But I'm like, man, I wish I had that right now for this. So you're going to make me wear a mask in the grocery store. Okay. <laughs> you get a look at this mask. It was nasty. Like, like actual glass, two glass circles for your eyes. And then this was one that had a really long snorkel that looked like a real, it came out where the nose, your nose is. 
and the snorkel went down to this canister that was threaded so you could swap out your things. And uh, it was just creepy. It looked like some real freaky freaky mask in a music video or something, right? But, man, I wish yeah. I had it because that's, that's the mask I would wear to protect all the all the sheeple from the Wuhan sniffles, you know? I uh, <laughs> I got a chance to meet some Russians, uh, military Russians, at the Paris Air Show because we took our jet uh two of them to the Paris air show and got, you know, walk around before the air show starts and talk to the other flight crews and, you know, swap stuff, mm-hmm. you know, trade. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, and they showed That's us, cool. uh, their chemical warfare kit they have with them at all times on their airplane because of the evil Americans. And, uh, They showed it to us, and I'm like, this wouldn't save you from a bonfire, much less chemical warfare. (laughs) I mean, seriously, I'm like, what in the world? And uh, their version of an officer that was in charge of them all was telling us, yes, that is just there for to make them feel like they're protected. You know, we don't have enough money to go around, so we're going to protect the, you know, the pilots and the officers, you know, ground crew can get the airplane ready and then die we don't care wow yeah <laughs> it just keeps them from getting mad and beating us up and taking our stuff they yeah, think they're yeah. protected I'm like oh my god no yeah. wonder you're evil but yeah <laughs> you know it's, it's funny because when you're in russia you hear that all the, at least before like i was there in like 96 yeah and i, I remember we had teachers like I went and I would do a little, I don't know why they had me do this because I could speak a little bit of Russian, but they, I actually went into like some of the schools and taught basic computer skills to, to kids and I was 16 years old. And so I was teaching these kids and I don't know, it was, it was weird, but I was talking to some of these teachers and some of them hadn't been paid in two years. And I said, well, why on earth are you still here? They said, well, I want to, if I quit, I won't have this job when I come back. And so I'm staying here just to make sure I don't lose my job. And it was the same thing when the uh, the police, they'd kind of arrest you and they'd see us, they'd recognize that we we're foreigners, Americans, they would think. And uh, they'd arrest us, make us buy them cigarettes and then let us go. And I asked one of them once, I was kind of getting sick and tired of it. You couldn't go anywhere on the metro without being arrested. Um, and I said, why do you guys do this to us? He goes, well, how else am I going to get cigarettes? I said, you'll buy them. And he goes, oh, he goes, and he started laughing and he told me the government pretends to pay us and we pretend to work. And it's yep. funny because I kind of, the public servants in the service sector in, in Russia seems to be a lot of that, Yes, you know, and kind of what you were saying with these guys. It's better now, honestly, it, a lot of things are worse, you know, now that the, uh, when the core government collapsed and then the oligarchs took over and now they're trying this fake democracy, uh, you know, some things are better like public service. Uh, the public works, you know, water, sewer, things like that, electric, are all more stable now. Mm-hmm. You know, there are other things that are worse, but, you know, uh, but I don't know, actually, I don't know if it's worse or just more public now because they had uh, crime and drug addicts and perverts and all kinds of stuff back then. They just denied that they had it, and when they found you, they put an end to it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. How do we get onto this topic? I don't know, but uh, oh, 
Gas mask, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Wuhan you brought up. I got my – Jeanette and I both got our first Wuhan vaccine this week. Did you? Yeah. Her parents are old and they're worried. So – Yep. And both of us being ex-military or former military, we're retired military. I have been experimenting on, I am certain, so often in the military. <laughs> well, I I crewed an aircraft that flew over Chernobyl during yeah. the, um, it was a weather bird, a WC-135, and it burnt out the uh, air uh, quality test filters. And these things are enormous filters. They're about half the size of a room. There's two of them on a jet. And they cost millions and tens of millions of dollars because the stuff that's in them. Yeah. And But the plane flew through Chernobyl. Yeah, you can get rid of the filters. They're buried out in uh, Arizona somewhere or Nevada somewhere. But the plane flew through radiation yeah you know oh but it's at a safe level uh okay so i went through that i went through um shots in the first gulf war went through anthrax in the second gulf war you know just I, i've had so many things tested on me I, uh wuhan runs from me <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i saw a uh, was- a really good meme uh, you know, the, the memes that they change up all the time. You see a Terminator uh, standing, you know, looking for whatever it's looking for, and then a little girl hiding under the desk. And uh, yeah. it'll be like uh, the uh, Terminator robot has it's labeled one thing, and the little girl's labeled another. I, best yeah. meme I saw that sums it all up was the – uh, the Terminator was labeled uh, uh, veteran's blood, and then the Wuhan hiding under the desk crying. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It's uh, Here we're supposed to come out of, we're supposed to be in our phase two of our, like, getting back to normal. And um, we've been, like, they've got, the government kind of put out, okay, once we're under this many hospital cases for the province, then we'll go to this level. Once there's this many hospital cases, then we'll go to this level and blah, 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 blah. And the the level two of reopening was supposed to be, I believe it was 400 hospital cases. And for like over two weeks, we've been under 270. And then there's supposed to be a big announcement this past Monday that they're going to announce, yes, we're moving to level two, which would reopen hotels and this and that. And they said, uh, you know, we're not quite ready for it yet. I, we don't think, we think it's too soon for Alberta. And so... You know, the, the frustrating thing is the government we have right now is a conservative government, and we just came from NDP, the New Democratic Party, which is very liberal, and people hated the former premier, Rachel Notley. Um, they thought Kenny would be a better guy, and he said all these things, I'm going to work hard for Alberta business and blah, 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 and now we can tell he's just like a puppet, you know, for somebody in Ottawa or somebody out east. And so this government is not going to get in now because, you know, if you tell your 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 people, people of the province that, okay, if we're under 400, then we're going to open up this. And then kids will, kids sports will be on, we'll open up hotels with restrictions and this and that. And then you're at 270. So you're doing like significantly better than what they said you're supposed to be. And it was all based on dates too, right? They'd say if by 
uh, March 1st, we're under 400. Well, like February 20-something, we're at 270. And then they say, oh, no, we're not ready. I tell you, man, nobody's, nobody trusts them, and there's no way they're going to get in again, which is kind of too bad because some of the stuff they decided on for, for business was way more logical. Uh, like the previous government we had, they brought in uh, mandatory minimum wage, <laughs> you know, $15 per hour. And it's like, that's re- that's the dumbest thing you could ever do. That's so stupid. And, you know, then this government was trying to get rid of it, but they won't have time to get rid of it because they're not going to be around for another term. You know, it's just, ugh, it's frustrating. But whatever. I, I, there's so many people now that are just like, you know what? Screw it. Do what you want. There's like barbershops opening them up. Um, say, hey, we're open for business. Go ahead. Give us a fine. You know, it's funny because <clears throat> when you fly into Canada right now, our wonderful... Uh, the the king queen whatever he is the Justine Trudy um he put this thing in place where as soon as you land in Canada there's only three airports you can fly into uh, I think it's three it might be four but you have to whether you test positive or not you have to quarantine in a government approved facility and these are hotels that the government has kind of taken over and you have to stay there for three days and it costs every single person two thousand dollars and that's out of your own pocket. I and how much of that is funneled the, back to, <clears throat> you know, people in, China. Uh, well, politicians in the East that might have families that are tied in with these hotels. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, it was interesting because, so you go there <clears throat> and basically the idea is you have to stay for the three days until you make sure that your, uh, these tests you get come back negative and they're not, they're not t- accepting the rapid testing. Uh, first of all, like you have to have a test in the U.S. within 72 hours of you getting there. And then as soon as you arrive, you get one of these better tests, I guess. And then you go to this ho- this facility and you quarantine two grand per person. So if and, and you know what? It was really crazy. They announced this and implemented it in three days. So if I was on a two week vacation to Mexico with my family, when I come back to Canada, there's six of us. Now, all of a sudden, I got to tack a twelve hundred dollar bill. A twelve, sorry, twelve thousand dollar bill onto my vacation, and there's families that are like, "What the heck? Are you kidding me? We just, you know, we spent six grand on vacation. This is what we saved all year long. There's four of us. Where are we going to get another eight thousand dollars for staying in this stupid hotel?" And so it's just, it was incredible how terrible it was, um, the way they did it. And the fine, if you don't do this, is eight hundred bucks. <laughs> and so now the government has this problem where people are just grabbing their bags. Like, no, you need to go to the facility. It's like, nope, you can send a cop to my my address. I'll be at home. I'll put a mask on and he can just write me my ticket. And then we'll go to court because it's all Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms. Like, this is a total violation. And then the, the terror, the really scary thing is that if you do test positive for coronavirus, you actually have to go to a, another quarantine facility, which is essentially a whole bunch of, you know, those portable ATCO trailers that they put up, like makeshift camps for the oil field or something. They've got those, and then they've got them fenced off with razor wire and guards, like the military. And so they literally send you to a, it looks like a concentration camp. It's a quarantine camp, a corona camp. And they've had these things built all all for, um, like they started putting the contracts out on the government websites for these places in like June and July. So they've been building these all summer long. So if you come back and if, say if you have a, a flu, right, or you have a cold that could test positive for coronavirus, you have to stay in this thing for two weeks and you're totally cut off. Like you're not allowed to take your phone in there. You're not allowed to take anything. It's kind of like a, it's terrifying, man. It's freaking, it's, oh. Do what? 
No phone. What's that? You can't take a form of communication in there with you? They say you can use their phones. Oh, this that's, that's what they so say. much BS. Oh, they, they take all of your possessions because they don't want any of anything to potentially be contaminated. Like you can leave that and your family can pick it up, but you literally put on their oh, no, clothes. They, they like, want to be able to listen in on that phone and you start talking about what's happening in there. They just cut you off. Yeah. No, but it, not that I don't really, trust governments or anything like that. <laughs> to hell with any government. But you know what? Oh, I hate governments. Hate governments. And you know what? The, the problem that I have or that, that governments have with me is that I am a free man and I will always be a free man. Even if that means dying for my own freedom, that's it. You, you're free as long as you decide until you decide that, okay, fine, I will do what you want. And I would rather, you know, the old expression, I'd rather stand on my feet than die or die on my feet than, than live on my knees. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. people um, like me, the governments have a hard time with. I'm a really, uh, have a hard line, no compromise philosophy. I'm willing to die for my freedom, but I'd much rather you die for my freedom. Yeah. You know, speaking <laughs> yeah. to the government, you know. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, because we used to, I heard a joke when I first joined the military, and I don't think it's a joke. I think it's the right way to think about it. And it comes from Germany, I think, uh, during World War II, is... I'd rather you die for your country than me die for mine. <laughs> yeah. Because then the problem solved. Exactly. You know, if all of you die for your country, guess what? We win. But, mm -hmm. you know, I I am so willing to, uh, you know, go to task for my freedom. I'd just rather you live through that. it, you know. Yeah. All things considered, because yeah. that's why I've trained and have my collection. And mm -hmm. how long were you in the military in service for altogether? Uh, twenty years and three months, and Danette was in for twenty-four oh, wow. years. Oh wow! I was yeah. going to stay so you... as long as I could because I really liked it, uh, but with my back. You know, once I got hit 20, they said, uh, retire or we retire you. Oh, okay, yep. Gotcha, gotcha. Because I got a chance to uh, go do something cool uh, for a short period of time outside of being an aircraft mechanic or a paralegal uh, in Africa as part of the war on terrorism. Uh, I was, you know, as far as my co-workers and my family were concerned at that time i was just in training in a training tdy for being a paralegal right but what yep. i actually did was go to africa and do some cool shit with uh uh some other volunteers uh looking because most of most terror is financed either through well, it used to be financed through either crime or Saudi Arabian money. Well, most mm -hmm. of the Saudi money has kind of been dried up after they found out, oh, Osama bin Laden, you know, that whole thing. Yeah. So most of it's through black marketing and other crime. Uh, the slave trade is a big deal. Drug uh, uh, smuggling is a big one. Weapon smuggling is a big one. 
uh, but just street crime too, particularly in on the African continent. Um, yeah. You you force these people to be criminals for you. You take their money as a war uh, as a crime lord. You give it to your warlord, and then they pass it on up to Al Qaeda. And uh, and we were there to you know kind of try to cut off those money trails. You know, track the money back mm-hmm. to its source and cut that off at the root. And, and uh, you know, actually forgot where we're, I was going with that. That's something else, huh? Yeah. And how long were you there for? Like, like you actually went to? Oh, Africa I know why I was there. Um, uh, I know where I was going with that. Uh, the we I had a I was a I would normally drive everywhere we went. Because I just loved driving. Well, this mm-hmm. guy that was a volunteer from the army, he was in. Uh, he was a ranger. He uh, he was driving. We got in a car wreck because he's a moron, as far as driving goes, <laughs> and yeah. it re hurt my back, and I had to not do that stuff anymore. Uh, but I did it so the first time for about seven months, and I did it the second time uh, for just short of three months. Oh wow. And, so uh, what, what you were doing, was it like really like kind of like, was it more like operations, like sitting around, figuring out things, looking at information, or is it actually like on the street, like going in there, busting in doors and no, what like here's, here's the short version of it? what we did. Um, we used our, you know, United States Intel and allied intelligence as far as uh, counterterrorism, counterintelligence, which covers a broad spectrum and it includes uh, all kinds of communications, including crime, right? And then on the ground, you've got allies in those countries and you, hey, this is what we're looking for. And money is kind of easy to track electronically, way easier Mm -hmm. than you want people to realize it is. And Mm -hmm. giant pallets of money are also pretty easy to track. Because there's, you know, gossip out there. Well, we would find the local criminals that were on the street doing the crime, and they would either start working for us, giving us information, you know, being moles for us. Mm -hmm. Well, we kind of took them off the board. Hmm. Um, My uh, role in it was... Yeah, I was a driver for a while, um, mostly. I was a driver. I did research very, very well. Um, I could connect electronic dots very, very well. And then I was a a very good interviewer, as it were. Hmm. Uh, uh, I created this thing we would put on the table where we would interview people, quote, unquote, uh, and it was this long board that was about uh, three feet long, set up on two smaller uh, blocks and hinged. And you'd, you know, put their hands under it. And the farther the top board was rolled down, you know, the closer it got to the tabletop. <laughs> 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 yeah. And, uh, you know, you'd sit there. Oh, and so you're giving them manicures. 
Yes, right up, <laughs> right above the wrist, or right below the yeah. wrist. Um, well, that's nice. Right on those carpal tunnels, and uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> massage. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, and I will tell you, most of the people there, they just wanted money for their family. You know, it was a job, and the only job they had available yeah. to them was crime. That's you know, yeah, literally in some of these African nations, you're you're told what to do, or you get dead. You know. Yeah, and they do this on a village level, uh, not just on a person by person. They think you know it's not efficient enough. So this village, you're going to be prostitutes. This village, you're going to be pickpockets. And if you don't, we mm. just annihilate you. Come, we got a lot of you, you know. Wow. And the less I have of you, uh, the more money for me, you know, because yeah. I don't have to give you food, and medicine, and school. Uh, yeah. But uh, I was a really good interviewer, uh, and depending on who you approached, I was really good at reading that person uh, so you could know whether to be good cop or bad cop, you know, best friend uh, okay, or yeah. torturer. So Yeah. And we learned early on that some forms of torture uh, are just stupid, and everybody wants to keep their hands and their genitalia. Yeah. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. I was talking to somebody about uh, a relative of mine and they were like, well, you know, what did you do this or that or waterboard or blah, blah, blah. Nope. What are the two things a man can't live without? Yeah. Particularly in those societies, mm-hmm. hands and genitalia, you know, yeah. just saying. So, I, okay. What is waterboarding? Um, the short version of it is you put a wet uh, fabric instrument, like a towel or a T-shirt, over somebody's face. You invert them like you're in a uh, dentist chair where your head is lower than your feet. Okay. And then you pour water over their face in that wet rag. So they're not necessarily breathing in enough water to actually drown, but you think you are. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And it's getting all in your sinuses. Uh, but since you're inverted, oh, you're not getting it in your lungs because gravity, uh, not all that yeah. much anyway. And uh, you swallow a lot, but then you choke it right back up because you're inverted. Oh, that would um, suck. And the problem with waterboarding is the same thing as some other forms of torture is you get a lot of false information. Oh, okay. Or... Or you get squat deadly because you can go too far with uh, uh, pain and suffering, and then they, they clam up and they don't tell you nothing because now they're you've you've cemented uh, them as an enemy. Yeah, yeah. And that was a problem with the extremist uh, Islamic terrorist is they would just shut up and not tell you anything, uh, hmm. and then you then you that then you have to get into. Uh, uh, chemical uh, interrogation. Hmm. What the heck is that stuff like? It's you know you just get like minor you, it... uh, anesthesia, uh, rohypnol, because they can put you in this state with rohypnol and the reversing agents in between being unconscious and conscious oh, to okay. where your brain's still working. But yeah. you're not cognizant of it. Yeah, you're not. And you yeah, can, you're not thinking. And they just 
Yeah, he can ask you all kinds of stuff. Problem is, there's a fine line between truth and fantasy in your head. Yeah, yeah. That's why, and and schizophrenia eats at that wall, right? Yeah. So, you have to to really be, I don't like it. I don't trust it. Uh, And the two doctors that I knew personally uh, and talked to about chemical uh, interrogation, they're like, you know, we're paid to do it. We have to do it because we're military. But, you know, there's I don't put a lot of faith in it, in other words. Hmm. I'm like, well, if you don't, you know, I'm not going to. And yeah. they were saying, well, what do you do? And I was – and one of the doctors actually gave me some pointers on uh, how to make it hurt worse but do less damage. Okay. And I'm like, oh, cool, thanks. For the manicures. And, well, hmm. uh, there's a lot of nerve groups in our – in a male groin, uh, we don't necessarily have to, uh, you know, crush the penis or the testicles or cut them off or anything like that. But they think you are because it hurts that bad. Oh, wow. You know, uh, somebody comes at you with a, that's something that's really, it's stainless steel. It looks like a, um, like a 20 penny nail. Mm-hmm. Uh, sharpened up, and they're coming at your you know, scrotum with it. You, you start singing like a canary. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, oh my god! How could you do that to another down. guy? I'm like, um, yeah. The Twin Towers. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, people getting blown up uh, in Fallujah. Yeah, that's how I do that. Yeah. Yes, and you know what? The, Here's something. You, <laughs> the guy that was in charge of us, uh, he was a former Marine, but currently working for one of those alphabet agencies. Yeah, and he absolutely loved every one of the most horrendously inappropriate uh, uh, comedians of the 80s, 70s, eighties, and nineties. Uh, anyone you can think of. He just loved them, knew everything, every shtick they did, right? And yeah. he was a big comedian. That's why him and I got along really great. And uh, <laughs> one of the – every 30 days we had to get a short interview by a mental health professional to make sure what we were doing weren't affecting us. And in one okay. of his interviews, they first – they start off with, so, you know, why did you volunteer to do this? And he's like, have you seen the gas prices? <laughs> <laughs> I am sick and tired That's of my wife having to go to Walmart, come home and complain about how expensive everything is. And and the psychologist is just looking at him like, I don't know if you're being serious or not. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. Right on. And well that uh Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say do one of my my famous segues, um, you know, speaking of sticking a nail through a man's scrotum, have you seen that April <laughs> Wilkinson is part of a new History Channel show? <laughs> yes, I, I did see that. Uh, <laughs> and her yeah, job, it's, it's, her job is not only to be the chippy of the show, uh, but to pick and judge 
the world's most or America's finest makers. Is that how would she like know being, them? Are, are, so, like, I don't, I didn't look, I, I just heard about that she's got a show, but are they actually like good makers, or is it one of these stupid shows where you just get contestants and they're like, I've oh, only yeah, seen a to, couple. I haven't watched any of the shows, but I've seen the contestants on the the previews, and I've looked them up, you know, on the mm-hmm. website. No clue who they are. Hmm. You know, you know one thing I notice, um, and it's funny because I noticed I started realizing this, like in the early two thousands, like two thousand two, two thousand three. Like, do you ever hear of Maker Magazine? No. Okay, so it was a. Uh, it probably came out in like early two thousands. Uh, it was very pricey. Like I think it was a quarterly, or maybe like every other month. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but it was like fifteen or sixteen bucks for this magazine. But it was thick. It was kind of like a Sears catalog. Um, not like a small phone book, but you know, it was a substantial magazine. There's a lot of stuff. Um, like Jimmy Darista uh, did a lot of stuff for Make Magazine for their YouTube channel and stuff like that. And I remember they had this one guy who was really involved and he was actually doing a bunch of YouTube stuff before YouTube was Google or, uh, you know, before it was monetized or anything like that. His name was Bree Pettit and he was the one who, I think he started MakerBot. Yeah, I know who he is. Yeah. But it's so funny because this whole maker movement, the one thing I've been thinking about lately and I've been realizing is that it's all a bunch of DIYers who have learned to do stuff. But it has nothing to do with old world trades or old world craftsmanship. Like I see all these YouTubers that are just blown up and they've got like 1.5 million subscribers. And then I look at the way they drill a hole with a drill press. I'm like, you look like somebody you who's never done it before. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah, and, and I, I think that of, they don't. I mean, I think of the makery the movement done. as infomercials for these uh, big companies that that uh, uh, sponsor these folks behind the scenes or even up in front of your face because everybody hates an infomercial, but everybody yep. apparently loves to see uh, the average Joe or Janet making it, I guess. I don't know. but So the companies have found a way to take – this YouTube movement and still make commercials because mm-hmm. April's got to be the, the most, the largest example of a mediocre at best skilled DIYer with mm-hmm. millions worth of stuff being just lavished upon her as sponsorship. And paid to use all that millions of equipment. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, I know. It's like, I, I'm. you know what? It's, it's cool. I think it's great. And I, I it's funny because I, I really do like the quote unquote maker movement. I, I think it's great to get people out there building stuff with their hands. But it's funny because anybody who's big in the maker movement, uh, there are very few of them that I actually respect their skill set or actually respect them as a tradesperson or craftsperson. Whereas when I look at like when I did my apprenticeship, some of these guys that I've worked with, uh, I worked with this one uh, millwright. He was actually, he's actually a Quaker. He's interesting. His name was Ben. And 
you know, he grew up in the Appalachian Mountains where he worked up in there and stuff on these big steam turbines and stuff like that. And he, I don't know, he'd retired twice, but he was always bored. So he kept coming back to work. And I don't know how he ran into my dad, but he worked for my dad for a while and I got to work under him. And he was the most fascinating guy. He carried around a small tool pouch and they were all tools that must have been 20 years old at least very few tools, but he could do so much with those tools and he would like take this and put it with this. And, and just like he's a, he's always say these, uh, these steel wedges that they used to crack the casings of these steam turbines, or he called them turbines. Um, and they would get them on the site. They'd come in these crates and you know, there'd be hundreds of them. So you'd start cracking it and, you know, you got this big upper half of this turbine that's like 40 feet long, weighs how many tons. And that's how they get it off the bolts, right? Off the studs and stuff. They just start putting wedges in and they put the next size of wedges in all the way around. And he said, you literally just walk around. A crew of guys walks around. Everybody taps a wedge. Tap, tap, tap. You know, kind of like when they're setting rail track or something. You're um, splitting actually, granite and marble in the quarry. You use wedges. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyways, he had you, he had tons of these in his at, at home. I forget exactly where he lived. I don't know if he's from, I think he's from Virginia. I, I don't know which one, but... Um, and so he gave me two of these wedges and I still have them and I still use them all the time. But when I look at the way that he used his tools, you know, he had a, he had an old uh, leather wrapped ball peen hammer, a nest wing, and you can't even get those anymore, um, that he'd redone the handle on several times because it, you know, they break down after using them. Um, you know, he didn't have any new tools and they're all like his tools could have been borderline vintage, right? You could almost, you put them in a, uh, an antique mall or an antique store, a lot of people would think, oh man, that is a real old antique. I could look and like, yeah, that's like a 1970, that was whatever. But the way that he used tools, he was an, a true tradesman or true craftsman, right? Like he was just the way he, I don't know, it's amazing. But then you look at the, the, the maker movement now and it's like, and I, I mean, I, I do the same thing too. I buy all, all kinds of tools. Um, but it's like, oh, yeah, I got all these Ryobi tools and I got this new thing and I got this new jig and I got this new this. And, and it's like, it, it seems none of them can be like, okay, well, you know what? Let me just grab, pick up the skill saw and cut a straight line with it. No, no, I've got my saw stop. And, you know, I, I don't know. It, it seems the maker movement is so gung-ho on, on tools. And some of them, you know, if you were to take everything that the people use nowadays, there's a lot of good improvements. But take this back into like the fifties, a lot of it probably just looks like gimmicks. And there's so many things I see people using. I'm like, why on earth would you buy that? Like I see people will buy these braces for their cordless drills so that they can drill square holes into like a sheet of plywood or something. I'm like, have we really gotten to the point where we can't drill like straight holes up and down anymore? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, have you ever seen oh, those yeah. things where it's, I think Woodpecker yeah. makes it and you clamp your drill to it, you set it on, you go straight. Really? You either use a drill press or drill a whole crap ton of holes so that you can get to the point where you can drill a straight hole freehand. That's called skill set, right? Yeah. Putting your drill in a tool isn't a skill. <laughs> that's a, that's a motion. That's a monkey can do this too. I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm, the more I look at, at the maker movement, the more disappointed I am. It's, it's just not as inspiring as what I have seen out in industry with true craftsmen. Yeah. And I, long time ago when I got interested in, uh, woodworking and started making furniture. I went to a museum and was took a tour behind the scenes, you know, paid that extra money. And the tour was 
the tour guide was an actual craftsman. Uh, yeah. And he was a historian and uh, did museum quality restoration and rescue of historical mm-hmm. pieces, right? I mean, this guy knew his stuff. And he, he started the tour off with uh, this little table with a hammer, a chisel, a saw, and a couple of other tiny pieces, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, and we were in a building, inside a building. It was this uh, old blacksmith shop that they had taken down piece by piece and then rebuilt inside the museum as a dis- uh, as a display. Anyway, he's like, the building that you stand in, when it was first built in whatever year by whatever blacksmith and his son, these are the tools they used. Mm -hmm. And we're going to come back to this. And we take this whole tour and uh, not just the evolution of furniture making and some other things like blacksmithing, but tools. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Absolutely, we have a bunch of gimmicky crap nowadays. Yeah. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with using the most up-to-date, best quality tool to provide mm-hmm. the best quality product to your client or to if you're building your own house. Because yeah. he, when he got back to the end of the tour, we're standing at that table of a few tools. He said, this saw... When it was when this guy used it, when it was made, it was the best you could get in the world, and it probably cost him three months worth of wages. This hammer cost him this, and blah, you know. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even though this is all they had, he's using the best available. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to go back to, you know, uh, flint tools just to make you think, self think you're a craftsman. What you got to do yeah. is have skill, and that's what he said. Yeah, that's what he was trying to yeah. impress upon people is, it's the skills, not the tools. Yeah. And the better you get at making something, like you're a museum quality restoration expert, he's using probably the best tools available in the world. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's an interesting way to you look know. at it. Uh, there's some tools that are are kind of put in place to compensate for lack of skill. Yeah, and now the best thing to do, the to me, there are all kinds of tools to do the job, but the best tool or tools to make a dovetail, to make a drawer, is still a little pencil, a little scribe, and a dovetail saw. You can get the little angle jig, but it's just a little square piece of um, wood or metal with the right angle on it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, until you cut your thumb enough that your uh, thumbnail starts growing at that angle. Uh, <laughs> and not that my left one is like that, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, so you can use all the... You know, if you're in a projection setting, making kitchen cabinets, bust out a, a Lee uh, dovetail jig. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But if I'm making a, 
a, re, a shaker table or uh, one of my recreation uh, side tables that I do. Um, I make I have a shaker lamp table that I make, and this other it's a queen uh, not a queen ant. Uh, one's a Washington table. Uh, I cut okay. those dovetails by hand. Be, one, yeah. it's faster because I'm only doing one drawer. Uh, yeah. Because I can get that drawer cut, all those dovetails cut and chiseled faster than I can set up one of those stupid jigs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're so finicky, I have found them sometimes unusable. Uh, yeah. You know, it depends on the wood, the size of dovetail and all that. You know, the bigger the dovetail, the better those jigs are. But then if you're doing a dovetail that's, you know, two inches wide, just cut it by hand. You know, if I'm mm-hmm. doing uh, finger dovetails that are, you know, almost down to uh, cutting the dovetail out, they're so close, uh, you know, maybe a 32nd of an inch uh, at the point of the tail by hand is the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. Cause that That's crazy. Router bit's just going to, you know, yank that wood out of there. Yeah, yeah. No matter how careful you are. But anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually just kind of in our conversation, I was thinking about a tool I just bought yesterday. Um, uh, I've just bought nothing overly exciting, but just a DeWalt laser level. Because um, I'm, I'm putting a mezzanine in the garage and um, I was going to have to cut down some cabinets that are existing that like bolted to the wall. So I was actually just going to use like a skill saw without having to remove the cabinet away from the wall. I thought, you know, how am I going to transfer a line? And anyways, I thought, you know what, I've got a bunch of tile work to do. And I've, I've thought about these laser levels and I've always thought they're gimmicky and stupid. And I've always, I've always prided myself on being able to find, to get things plumb and square in the traditional way. Um, you know, and that came from, you know, when we'd lay out these huge carousels in the airports, I mean, it needs to be squared to the building because, you know, the, the tugs drive here and if all of a sudden you're, you know, one end's close to a wall than the other, they're going to constantly crash that one. And and even the thing's not going to run properly if it's not square and plumb and true. And so over the years, you know, I've had these old tradespeople teach me these, you know, like the three, four, five triangle, Yes. you know, nobody knows what that is. And, And I guess for our listeners, you can find out if something is square by drawing a three, four, five triangle and any, any multiple of three, four, five. So, you know, if you have a, a piece, the, the shortest section is nine feet. Well, then you'd go up right 90 degrees to that. You measure out 12 feet and then you measure at the one end of the nine foot to that one end of the 12 foot. And that will be exactly the nine. So it'd be 15 right? The three, four, five triangle. And it's amazing. And, and even just using old fashioned like levels, you know, there's, there's certain ways. Okay. If you're hanging a picture, you just stick a level on it. But sometimes if you need to transfer that level around, around a wall or into a cabinet or something like that, you know, it's, it's tricky and I can do it and it takes a long time. And uh, usually it's accurate. You know, sometimes say if you're putting a cabinet up somewhere and you got to cut out a hole for uh, an outlet or, or something, right? You're doing some kind of finicky work and it's all transferring lines here and there. And then I thought, you know what? I'm just going to get this laser level. So, so I haven't actually done any work with it yet. I gotta, I'm going to use it to put my joist hangers up. But I was looking at it and I was checking it. Like I, I set up on the wall and then I'd measured down from the floor and measured it here. And then I took my other levels and it is incredibly accurate, like really accurate. 
And I literally, it takes three batteries. I turn it on. I can mount it a whole bunch of different ways. It's easy to set the exact height that I want. And then I can literally have a straight line across the entire wall. Yeah. You know, and, and the other things, when you're doing some things, like say if you're hanging pictures or something, you know, you little pencil marks here and pencil mark there. Or even if I'm hanging a shelf and you got a pencil mark, the stud, the stud, you know, I hold a four foot spirit level up and it's like, but, 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 but. It's so, I was just like, why didn't I buy one of these a long time ago? But I think the reason is because when I think about that tool, I'm like, that's a gimmick. It's a trade. I never known trade. Yeah. But then also it's like when I, when I learned how to do stuff, uh, I, I mean, I've built buildings before I framed whole buildings. Uh, the I've actually done some by myself where I was the one in charge and I had guys working under me to build a building Yeah, and I've worked under guys too. And nobody that I ever worked with ever used a laser level. <laughs> right. And I, I always have this bad connotation because probably 10 years ago, I bought a really, really, no, yeah, cheap, cheap drill press and it had laser guides. <laughs> and I always thought that was the dumbest thing ever. I'm like, well, first of all, I, I'm going to put a center punch in there because I need to make sure that that drill bit doesn't wander around. But even then I'm like, why on earth, like, why would you need laser crosshairs on a drill press? To me, that is the stupidest thing on earth. I see zero value in that because well, as you bring your drill YouTube bit down. Maker. And you have to sell that drill press for somebody, That's your true. audience interested enough to buy it. Yeah. Just saying. But I could just, I could just see some howdy doody homeowner lining up these laser crosshairs where he wants the hole, clamping it down, drilling and pulling it up and then going, why isn't this hole in the right way? You know, it, it takes away the, the requirement for you to actually watch as the drill bit just comes into contact with your workpiece. It's like, that is all that matters. These crosshairs could point to the moon. That doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> I was just like, this is a stupid thing. And it's, it's not hard to look at your drill press touching your workpiece. Nope. You know, if you draw an X and you want the hole right there, I don't understand the, even the sense that it'd be a good idea to put a laser crosshairs on a drill press. To me, that is nope. asinine. That is so mm -hmm. stupid. Yeah, you know, right. And you know, laser uh, levels, the professional ones, they help you do things better, faster, you know, mm -hmm. It's if you know how to do it, then you know how to. And I wouldn't suggest anybody use one unless you know how to do it without, because yes. just in case somebody, you know, one of the knuckleheads that worked with you dropped it and then didn't tell you, and now it's not mm -hmm. not doing what it's supposed to do the right way. Because you know, I was the last job I did on a large scale, like building a building. It was a basement. And somebody had one, and I'm like, he turned it on, and he started uh, putting on the riser boards. I'm like, uh, you know that level's not level. No, well, it's a laser level. It's mm. got to be right. No, come back here and yeah. look. And he's like, yeah. I mean, he argued with me for five minutes until he came back and looked. He's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And then you and go up there, and that's there's the a first thing dent I did. in the side of it. And yeah. Like the very first thing I did with mine last night before I used it to do any work, I set it up and I checked it to the ways that I know are accurate. Yeah, every you know, and, time and I manual. turn it on, I use my old fourth, I'm sorry, six foot level, put the bottom of it on that laser line and make sure the level's level, you know. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm just, that's what I'm going to do. And then I'll yeah. use it, but... Uh, yeah, the only power old, tool that I think a laser is really good on that saves you a little bit of time, but a, a lot of half a seconds add up during the workday is a uh, a good one, not a cheap 
one and not one you buy and slap on the side of it, but a sliding miter saw with a laser line that shows you where that blade's going to cut. Mm-hmm. It just it saves time if it's accurate. Oh yeah, it re- it yeah. really does, and it saves those little pieces of wood where you're guessing where that blade's going to cut, and you move the board a yeah. little bit at a time. But yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I I totally see that. Like I don't have one, and I know it's a pain because like I mean, I, what I'll do is I'll put my line there, and I kind of like I always have to kind of bend down. And so I kind of bend at the yeah. waist and I, I stare along the blade line and every single cut, unless I'm, you know, you know, I'll, I'll usually use stops if I'm, say we're doing our signs for Etsy. I mean, I just put yeah. my stop up and it's like, boom, 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 boom. Oh, absolutely. But uh, Th- Those things are awesome. You know, and those are jigs that we can use, you know, a little piece of wood screwed to the table to a professional flip up stop, you know, that just mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Here's a real quick tip somebody taught me um, when I was working on the road. We used to use a lot of like the little one foot levels. We used to buy them at Sears Craftsman. Yeah. And one of the guys I worked with, he goes, is that you, do you check it for accurate in the store? I said, what do you mean? He goes, did you check your level? And I'm like, no. He goes, why not? I said, well, how do you even do that? And so, so dead simple. But I do this every time if I'm going to buy a level. Um, so you take it to the counter or whatever. You set it down. See where the, the spirit bubble is. Flip it 180 degrees and it should be yep. the exact same spot. Absolutely. And I'm like, that's brilliant. And it's like, you know, you look at one that's level and then you flip it 180 degrees and it's showing a little bit off kilter. He's like, this level's garbage. And I remember we were at a Sears in, Mon- uh, yeah, Sears in Montana and we went and took a couple of these to the counter and set it down, flipped it 180. Oh, this one's no good. Set it aside, set it down. And the sales guy's like, I never knew that. And I said, yeah, you should probably send all these back. They're defective. And he did. He said, yeah, I didn't know that. And we had to go through a couple of them before we found one that was accurate, 180 degrees. I'm like, that is such a, but little tiny tricks like that. Those are the things that you learn from, not from YouTube, right? Not from watching makers, but from working with tradespeople. Absolutely. In my opinion. Just like checking There's so your many little things like that. Just like checking your saw to make sure it's the blades parallel to the fence. Is you yeah. make a cut, you flip the board hundred yeah. over, and make another cut, and it shouldn't actually cut. But yeah, um, you know things like that. You, know, it works for the mill. It works for a, all kinds of things, right? And mm-hmm. just people don't are you know there's we're losing our craftsmen that are passing mm-hmm. these things down. Yeah. And I think the maker movement is keeping interest in the subject, but it's not, it's missing a lot of the, the finer points. And you, you, even your example, you just said, made me think about, you know, cut the board, flip it 180 and check it, right? Should be exactly the same. That is such a simple thing. And so many of these, like these really accurate techniques that, that people used to do without lasers and without all these digital gauges and hoo-ha, it's all simple. And it's almost too simple that you'd never think of it on your own, right? And that's the stuff that it seems like a lot of gizmos are trying to compensate for. In my mind, you, you see, it's like there's really easy traditional technique to doing this, and ba boom, ba bing, and it's very. You look at it, it's like, oh, that's so simple. Why didn't I think about that? Like when that guy showed me how to check a level, and I was like, you can't check a level. <laughs> like, I thought you had to go to some lab where they've got scientifically calibrated thingamadoos, you know, but. A lot of that stuff isn't passed on in the air quotes maker movement, it seems. One person I think kind of does it well, and maybe not necessarily well, but Jimmy Darista. Not not for a lot of stuff, but even for the fact that he's got like a big, huge steel block. And when he's cutting something, he'll measure the first one, 
just literally take a steel block and set it on his miter saw fence or his, his stop. And I was like, that's brilliant, right? So yeah. many people would never think about that. And it's not fancy. It's not this. It's it's literally just a big piece of steel and he's going to set it there. And as long as he's not like smashing a four by four into it, it's not going to move. He slides exactly. it up there and he's got a repeatable stop. To me, that's like a, something that a, a, a real tradesperson would do. And I don't know, like uh, he's got a lot he's, of interesting skills and stuff. I don't know what he did when he was younger. I thought he was a shop teacher, but uh, I guess not. He worked in a sign shop for a long time. Yeah. But he's older now, mm-hmm. like me. Mm-hmm. We've done our stuff. We've got our knowledge. Yeah, and now we need to worry about, you know, mortality starts kicking in. You know, what am I going to, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of money am I going to have when I'm 60, 70? So he commercialized. I get it. Mm-hmm. The makers that burn me up are the ones in their 20s and 30s that haven't ever done anything to become a maker, they don't have the skills <laughs> and they start with the commercialization. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, uh, was watching a very popular woodworker on YouTube. He has his own, uh, podcast. He has a, he might be on a podcast with Jimmy DeResta. Um, he's everything in his shop is a sponsored item, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked for a, a, a global magazine for woodworking. Hmm. The dude actually said, if you don't have a saw stop, you're irresponsible and dangerous. Oh, wow. Sir, you're a moron and you're a liar. Yeah. Because I've had yeah. my Delta cabinet saw and I had a contractor saw before that, one Delta, one rigid. Um, and I've never used the saw guard because it blocks my view of the blade, which I think is dangerous. Me personally. Um, mm-hmm. If I can't see what might hurt me, I think that's dangerous. I'm yeah. not going to trust a piece of plastic that's flopping around on top of my saw to save me. Um, I want mm-hmm. my eyes and my hands to save me. Yep. And I'm cognizant of what I'm doing anytime I'm around that saw. Uh, and the only tool in my workshop that's ever, ever hurt me is me. Yeah. You know, um, I burnt the living daylights out of my hand because uh, I was grinding a piece of steel, set it on the counter, and then a minute later put my hand on it because I'm an idiot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, using tools, you know, I've never hurt myself because I'm – anal about being cognizant of what I'm doing. <clears throat> and I, I have a, a DNA gift where I can't think, do, or say anything generally. Saying is a might not always work, but thinking and doing, I think two, three, four, or five steps ahead of not only what I need to do, but the consequences of doing those things. My brain works that mm-hmm. way, you know. If I, if I go to open the door unconsciously, I'm already considering what's on the other side of the door. What am I going to do? Blah, 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 blah. What was locked? Oh my God. Brain stop. But you know, when it comes to power tools, Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking about, you know, where my hand is. And I think those saw stop saws are really great, but they also make people complacent. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, if you know, I, and I've heard people make that comment. It's never going to hurt me because it salts automatically. Well, what happens yeah. the day you're using a table saw that's not a saw stop because you're doing a collaboration with some other famous YouTuber that's not sponsored by saw stop. He's sponsored by jet or yeah. whoever, you know? Yeah. I've heard, like I've heard that comment actually come up in, in a couple other woodworking podcasts and people are like, you know what? I, it, it said the exact same thing. I said, I'm, I'm worried if I got one, it would make me complacent. And even if you're complacent, on a saw stop that's still terrible right like you should yes. always be afraid of things like I, I tell my boys when they use my metal lathe i'm like this thing will kill you if you yeah. sneeze yep. and, and you jerk the wrong way and it catches a shirt or clothes you'll get sucked in there and this has so much power it'll wrap you up in there and it doesn't even know or if they're using the saw i'll be like you know what the one thing you need to know about a saw is that it loves cutting human flesh they love cutting you it's, it's easier to cut you than it is the board, so they enjoy cutting you. You need to know yeah. that. This saw is going to try and get you. Think of it oh, that yeah. way, right? I've seen a... And they're, that's how you have to think about it. If you got this saw stop, it's like, hey, uh, I can stick a hot dog on here and bang, it stops the blade. <laughs> it's only going to cost me 60 bucks for a new cartridge. It's like, wow, that is such a... Y- yes, it is a sense of security, but uh, in a certain sense, it's a false sense of security because what if... What if the cartridge you got was faulty? What if it didn't work quite right? Yeah, what if you it's know? already gone off once? You that don't know anything about mechanics changed it yourself and did something wrong. Yeah. You know, there's all these, there's a lot of what ifs, and I'm not trusting yeah. it. I'm going to trust me. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that, well, I've seen two people degloved using different tools. And it was at completely different times. One was a metal lathe, and one was a very specialty tool used on for aircraft at that time. Um, yeah. And it, it ain't pretty. Because uh, one oh, guy was from the imagine. elbow down, he got degloved, and the other guy was just his hand. Uh, <laughs> just the word degloved makes me And feel it was like, just, <laughs> and in the metal lathe one, it was an, I forgot the brand of lathe, but it was enormous enormous and it was i bet you a tenth of a second wow he didn't even know it it had happened in the time it took for it to happen you know it took his brain a lot longer to process that oh i just lost all my flesh off my bones in my left hand uh than it did for it to happen, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's nasty. How do people, is that a lot of blood when that happens? I'd not, imagine. Not hey. at first. Really? Not at first. It was like a little, like a ketchup yeah. package going off. And then obviously your, whatever artery, if it got, if it was ripped off, the guy that got degloved, yeah. it was his skin and a little bit of flesh. The guy that got it from the uh-huh. elbow down, it was all of it. It actually took his. It actually took his pinky too. But uh, oh, um, and that artery uh, was just whoosh, 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 oh yeah. Like a, and I I reached over and uh, pinched that off for him <laughs> as we were laying him on the ground. Because as soon as he looked at it and his brain processed what happened, his eyes rolled back and he was gone. Yeah, protect himself, you know, which is good because then his body can. 
shut down and do what it needs to do to help prevent shock as quick. And uh, so his heart didn't go as fast. He didn't lose as much blood. It was just good that he passed out. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, let's – now that we've got anybody listening to this, just squeezing, like <laughs> wheezing and being like, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking, I had this thought too. We're, tell you we're what, talking folks, about just the, pause the podcast and go and watch the Terminator. That <laughs> one scene where he cuts his, the show, little, the little boy that he's really a robot. And then think about degloving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I was thinking like, you one thing I noticed a lot of, um, there's a certain sense where I think this whole maker movement, like like I said, it's good, but there's also a point where it's not doing justice to what act, to, to what real craftsmanship and tradesmanship is. Well, thinking about, you know, say if you get some person who, and you don't necessarily need a trade to be good, right? Like, um, you know, I know a lot of tradesmen that are like, oh, I'm a journeyman millwright. But it's like, well, yeah, you haven't done anything. You've just got a ticket, you know. Now you need to go work for 20 years in the field and then gain some experience, you know. Um, but you get these people that's like, oh, you know what? I got a little table saw and I'm going to build some shelves in my garage. And so they put a video on YouTube and they're good looking or they've got a really great personality or they're wonderful on camera. And people are like, oh, cool. And then, you know, they get a following and a following. And next thing you know, they're full-time content creators building things, but they, their own experience has only ever been that first shelf they built in their garage or the first piece of furniture they built. And then everything else they've done on camera till then. And that's not to say that you can't learn that way, but I think there's so many big time, like famous makers that man, I'm truly disappointed. And, and I know that they don't have an awful lot of skills. I like to make things comes to mind for me. Um, You think so? I know you might not agree. I know you might not agree. When when I started watching him, I was like, you don't know what you're doing beyond YouTube. Do you, you know, you're teaching yourself this stuff. He is. And and I think he admits to that because like, what was he before? He's like a a programmer. He wrote code or something like that. But it is, and I find, like, I think he's learned a lot or a fair amount in woodworking, but when he's getting into, like, metalworking, he knows nothing. And, and he's got a bridge port and, you know, um, he does admit to that, I think. The thing I find interesting with him is that he will try stuff. Like, he's, you know, he'll try, I, I kind of stick to what I know. It's like, okay, I used to never do any woodworking ever because it's like, you know, I pound a nail into a board and it splits you, you can't go back. Whereas I'm a steel guy, I work with metal, man, I can weld something together. I can cut it apart and re-weld it infinite times as long as I've got good welds going on, right? It, it's, there's unlimited forgiveness there. Make a mistake. And I hear a lot of metal workers saying that exact same thing. And it annoys me because they're looking at it wrong. It's actually 180 degrees from what a machinist, you know, a one particular on YouTube that talks about, I mean, just talks uh, about woodworkers like they're just stupid, evil, and retarded. And I'm like, no, when I do something, when I'm making a piece of furniture, I can't make a mistake or I ruin this board. You can just put some metal glue on yours, you know, weld it, 
yep. and keep going. So you don't have to be careful. You don't have to know what you're doing. You can be stupid and retarded and be a machinist. As a mm-hmm. fu- as a furniture builder, I can't. Yeah. You know. I, now, what does Todd really think? I think both of those things: uh, a machinist, a woodwork, a furniture maker, not just a woodworker, but you know, a furniture maker. Uh, somebody builds a house, a millwright. If you have ethics, if you're interested in what you're doing, you're going to be good at it. And you're going to have mm-hmm. quality, you know, because I think of yep. the cost of that board. Uh, no, I don't want to split it, you know, so I'm going to pre-drill it. You know, I'm going to do whatever I can. It, obviously, mm-hmm. it's going to happen because, you know, wood's a natural product and no two boards are alike. And it could just be ready to split no matter what you do to it. But I'm going to take as much care as I can because, you know, that board used to be alive and I want to, you know, respect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Metal's just a hunk of rock that we call metal. Mm-hmm. No, it's absolutely true. And you know what the interesting thing is like and that's why I've always stayed away from woodworking. I'm like, I can't do that. Like that's too finicky, it's too you have to think about things that I don't want that I never have to think about, right? Like I don't think you don't think about grain. You don't you don't think about you know, even I learned a little trick some people do certain times if you take the nail and you flatten it out instead of having the point, you just hit it a few times with a hammer and it can in certain situations prevent splitting. Uh, particularly I think with like soft woods, like pine and stuff, right? Yeah. Because if you got a pointed nail, it's going to act like a wedge. Whereas if you kind of blunt it, it kind of just acts like a plug pusher sort of, it's not like pushing the wood apart. It's kind of pushing straight down. Um, yeah, I used to, <clears throat> I worked with, uh, my uncle when I was young and he really got me into like construction type woodworking because um, he needed free labor. So, you know, he'd come get me and <laughs> I'd help. But when we were building his uh, porch for, you know, for him and my grandma, he would, you know, he'd had this brick with him, a red brick. And before he would drive the nail, he'd put it on the, uh, the head uh, point up on that brick and just smack the, the point of the nail to flatten it out. Yeah. Before he drove every, and he was fast at it, you know. And I'm like, yeah. why are you flattening the point? Doesn't that, you know, isn't that counterintuitive? Yeah. And he explained yeah. it to me, and he showed me on a scrap what would happen. And I'm like, you know, and in your eight-year-old brain cannot process why uh, a f- square nail is better than a point nail. You just accept mm-hmm. it and go on. And then one day when you're 28, you're like, aha, now I get it. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, it reminds me of what my dad says, and this is something that um, you know, my dad said, I don't care. He's, al- he's always said this. I always remember him saying this. I don't care what the person does. If they are good at it, they will be fascinating to watch. And I, my dad always said, you know what? I would love to see somebody who's really good and can make a successful career out of collecting pop bottles. And not that you want to watch him pick them up out of the bags, but watch his process. And that's fascinating. And I think that's true, right? Like whether it's machining, woodworking. And I think for a lot of the maker movement, I think a lot of those people are good at making videos to watch. And that's why, like the maker movement, all these people wouldn't be, if it was based purely on skills, if it was like an annual convention where you went and you showed your skills, the big, big names wouldn't be the winners. You know what I mean? 
but they're good at making content. They're good at making something that a large audience wants to see and they keep coming back for. They're not necessarily the greatest tradespeople. Yeah, it's like right? in the blacksmithing world, um, there's a lot of famous YouTube blacksmithers, but the really good world-class blacksmith, Brian Brazil, mm-hmm. he doesn't make YouTube videos because you know what he's doing? He's out being a blacksmith. Yeah, yeah. That And he's also building schools in Africa, but anyway. Huh. Yeah, I know. It, it's interesting. It's... It's it's kind of funny, and and I wonder, depending on how big this gets or how long it goes, if it's going to end up being worse. So yeah, uh, so you think uh, YouTube uh, is heading this maker heading, heading towards where? that stupidity based TV? Um, yeah, and I'm going to use my favorite buddy Andrew as an example, not just as <laughs> not just a video, the hour long video he did recently where he used another chainsaw on another truck install a radio but the video he posted yesterday and my wife actually i, I kind of knew this but she you know uh pointed it out to me in such a way as to slap me in the face with it and make me admit it um he bought this new tracked uh man lift right a bucket lift okay. it's just a little thing and it can get in tight places blah 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 well he used it to um, fell a dying tree. Okay. Right on top of the man lift. <laughs> and if you watch the video closely, he yeah. it was set up that way. It had to have been. And I say that because mm. his job, his business is a property maintenance business. He, you know, does some excavating, tree clearing. He takes care of people's property. Mm-hmm. He's fell I don't know how many trees in his videos. And normally he does it right. He uses a an old dying rope, which broke the first time. And he said, oh, I can't stand rope. Look how thick this is, and it still breaks. And then he goes and uses what's left of the same rope. Yeah. At the bottom of the cut instead of the top of the Anyway. And when he pulls it, it just is going to, he's pulling on the bottom of the section of the tree that he's trying to fell and not above middle, right? Like you're supposed Mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. So when he, when it breaks off the tree, if he's pulling from the bottom of that section, it's going to go straight down onto his piece of equipment. Yeah. And then he blames it on the rope. (laughs) And the way he blamed it on the rope, it's clearly set up that I bought this piece of equipment I'm saying this is a really great thing and all these other people wanted it, but my buddy knew and I had to jump on it right away and go get the cash and give him this thing. Right. He's building it up. Then he drops a tree on it. Hmm. And really, you really No, you're just being an idiot for views. Yeah. His channel's changing. I think. It used to be really fascinating to me, but now it's like... Well, once he built that container shop, house, whatever it is, yeah. now he's done. Yeah. What's he going to do now? So yeah. it has to swing. You know, there's only so many snow plowing videos you can do. There's only so many um, radio installation with a chainsaw video. So it has to change. So yeah. now he's yeah. gone from what was a 
you know, a, a, I'm going to call it a bumbling fool, um, tripping his way to success that I saw in his early videos, a functional uh, person with emotional issues is what it looks like to me, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, to now, what I think is he set this up all along uh, to make himself look like, oh, I have, you know, a learning disability, but I'm still making it. And now I have to be the bumbling fool because that's what people want to watch. You know, you look mm -hmm. at your analytics, yeah. what videos have done better. Oh, when I'm an idiot. So now yeah. I have to find ways to be an idiot. Yeah. So, you know, here's a question uh, I was thinking about, like, you know, I always say the thing I like about the maker movement is that it has people, and I, I still think it's better than, like, gaming. <laughs> I mean, I'm an anti, I hate gaming. Um, and I always think it's good to get people interested in the trades and interested in this stuff. But I guess how, like, the, the trajectory that it's on with the way YouTube makes certain people big uh, that really are skillless people, how... Like, I guess if there was a solution to like, okay, how can we actually pass down the actual trades, the actual craftsmanship and, and real skills, not, oh, I bought this new woodpecker jig to help me drill straight up and down with my cordless drill. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I see the way all this stuff's going and all these people like, oh, I'm a maker and this and this. And then all these people pop up and they get famous and they really don't have the skills uh, to pay the bills, you know, like. There's certain people that have like millions and millions of views on YouTube that I wouldn't want to build my house because I'm like, I'm pretty sure everything's going to be a little too rinky dinky, a little too light duty. No, yes, I use this jig and this little cordless brad nailer to frame your house. I'm like, what? You know, but I guess like how, how can we go about, pa I guess, passing on real skills, real information. And I guess in a certain sense, you know, if you put it on YouTube, it's out of your hands, right? You could have a video. Very simply say, hey, I'm not going to waste your time. This is a video on how to check a, a level. When you go to buy a level, this is how you reference it. Boom, boom. That would be really valuable. To me, that's like, okay, good. That's a nugget that needs to be passed down. Same thing like you mentioned. Like, okay, if you want to check if your miter saw is square, cut a board like this, flip it 180 degrees, put it up to the saw blade. It should be the exact same angle. Now you know you're here's at 90. What, here's right? how you do that. You, you make a uh, two-minute video. You make a great thumbnail, you put it on YouTube, and you name it uh, the dirty little secret Stanley doesn't want you to know. That's you. <laughs> Will you be made? <laughs> 11 million views in two hours. Yeah. You know. Oh, there you go. You know what? Maybe that's, that's you know, yeah. I, I love that. Like, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> You better do this before this podcast comes out, because if not, somebody else is going to take this. <laughs> the, other, the, other, the other person listening to this podcast is going to take that. But you know well, what? Okay. It, but you've got three days for your next Tool Time Tuesday. The dirty little secret. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think I might have a new knife sharpener to test out for Tool Time Tuesday. Oh my! Yeah. Oh. Um, my goal, I realize what I want to do with my YouTube channel, and I want to I want to be the guy that gets all the sharpeners for free. All of them. I want everyone. In fact, I'm going to reach out to Tormac. I'm going to say I want a sharpener. Uh, so, you know, TS Prof, the Russian sharpener, yeah. 
they're sending they sent it's not released yet they're not releasing it till like the middle of March or the end of March uh, but UPS called me yesterday they couldn't deliver I just gotta it should be delivered today but it's a hybrid between their TS probably the K03 the big one mm-hmm. and then the last one they sent me was the Blitz that's their small one and so now they've got a brand new one that's a combination of the two so I'm like yeah sweet they like would you like to look at it. I'm like, yes, I would. Please send it to me. Thank you. <laughs> and then there's there's actually another company that's sending. There's two more companies that are sending me knife sharpeners too. I'm like, you know, I, I don't give a crap. I'm not getting paid to do these videos. I just want to see what knife sharpeners are, and I want to I want to die with more knife sharpeners than anyone else on earth. That's my goal in life. <laughs> that's why I'm building my mezzanine so I can put all my knife sharpening systems up there. <laughs> and then I'm going to do for- a video and. Sharpening all What's of that? mine. I'm gonna. I think for sharpening all my knives, I'm gonna go backwards in technology, and I want uh, an old, the old cast iron Norton three, uh, three stone system with an oil bath. Yeah, yeah. That's. I I used one. You know, my uncle's when I was a, a small knife knife collector guy, and. To this day, I think it's still the best one I ever used. Uh, hmm. As far as fast, sharp, good, you know, because that yeah. anything with a diamond stone, you better break in those diamond stones. They're going to tear up your knives. Yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no. So that's coming, but uh, you know that gets back to it too. So um, I've got these sharpening systems. Because I don't have the real world skill <laughs> to sharpen a knife the old school way, right? And I, I say that because I, I do now. Like I went and actually took a class on knife sharpening. And I believe knife sharpening is something that the more you do it, you will always get better. Like it's not like it's like, yeah, I'm really good at sharpening knives. I don't really need to do that anymore. If you're really good at sharpening knives and then you sharpen 10 more knives, you will be better than you were before that 10, I believe. Well, it the seems two to me uh, to be a... the two professional knife sharpeners I know that go and sharpen knives for, you know, uh, meat cutters, chefs, you know, professional knife yeah. users, they all use the exact same shit. You know, they rough it in yeah. with a with a belt sharpener, uh, and that well, both of them have homemade belt sharpeners. They use either 72 or 48 inch blades, right? And then they finish it with some version of the Tormek wet sharpener, you know, a slow hmm. uh, wet grinder. Uh, so, yeah. and they, they get paid yeah. a lot of money to sit in the back of their little van and drive around and sharpen knives. Hmm. That's cool. I've always thought about that. Uh, like uh, our offering a sharpening service. And then I was coming out of Canadian Tire probably a year ago, and I saw this van. It's like Calgary Knife Sharpening Service. I was like, oh, crap. He's already out in Strathmore, the jerk. You'll run him out. But yeah, no. You know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll get, get your you neighbor, the highway. mafia guy, to run him out. That's right. <laughs> hey, Tony, I got a job for you. Hey, when you get a minute from your oh. marijuana business, can you run this knife sharpening guy off? That's that's right. Do it quick, girls. I'll whack you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure my neighbor yeah, here in the middle of nowhere is a drug dealer, but Oh really? I'm convinced he's doing something illicit, but Huh. 
you know, it doesn't affect me. I don't know what he's doing. I don't have direct proof. I just have a gut feeling and uh, circumstantial evidence. So I don't care. Once yep. I have, and that's the with that, you know, proof or direct evidence, then I care. Yeah. Yeah, or it starts affecting you, right? Absolutely. That's a attitude people need to take. <laughs> Absolutely, I don't. Um, you know, I I told I I saw uh, I've always had a problem with homeowners associations, like these historical uh, committees that won't let you do something to your house because you're in the historic district. Um, I am one hundred and fifty percent of the belief that you do with your property, what you want to do. Mm -hmm. If I don't like what you're doing with your property, I should buy it and then I can do with it what I want, but I shouldn't get a bunch of people together and regulate because I'm a, you know, a stuck up neighbor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unless it's a defecting, um, uh, health, human happiness, kind of thing, you know, Mm-hmm. If he's collecting radium, yeah, let, let's stop that, you know, because you can kill yeah. the whole town. But Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But let's you, not have you know, a fine just, line. Let's <clears throat> have this giant two-foot-wide highlighted line that if it's not affecting health and human happiness, it's his property or her property. Uh, you know, you don't like it, offer to buy it. And if they don't want to sell, accept reality. Because <laughs> not I, everything goes your way. People don't get the irony when they say you live in a historic district, so you can't paint your house. Because back in 1780, it was only they only had white paint. Yeah. But did you also know in 1780 we just got through fighting a war so that you could do what you want with your shit? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <That's> funny. <laughs> Very interesting point. Hey, I, they, they don't, and these people, these, they don't get it. Uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's true. People just need to keep themselves. I, I want to read you this as a comment I got on my YouTube video a day ago. Uh, one of my videos is like a fast forward video, right? And so this guy, this is his comment. Sorry. Gave me a headache trying to watch the video. Way too much fast movement. <laughs> And that's his comment, right? And uh, it's the same thing. It's like, so what? It's it's like, go away. Just mind your business, you know? And I, I've taken the uh, the low road, definitely not the high road. I go after people, man. If you're going to be stupid and say something stupid to me, you're going to get it back. I'm Good. not a pacifist. Good. And uh, you can actually go onto YouTube and see this. This is a public reply that I did to him. And I want to keep it family friendly, but this is exactly what I said. I said, then shut up about it and quietly go somewhere else. It's not all about you, Muffin. <laughs> That's my reply. And he didn't respond yet. But it's just, it's this whole idea that, eh, I get what I want. And what, well, I don't want him to do that on his land. I don't want him to do this. It's like, it's not about you. Shut up, you know? And like you said, either shut up or you buy it. And if they don't want you to buy it, well, boo freaking who? You don't get everything you want in life. Life sucks. Just start, and then you die. Just start <laughs> offering to let them sponsor a video that you do and then. They can have it their way. Yeah. And just tell exactly. them it'll cost you $100,000. American, not Canadian. Yeah. yeah. 
don't want these Canadian pesos. They're worthless. Oh, no. I'm <laughs> just, you know, I'm not saying that. Um, but, you know, just say, hey, oh, yeah. okay, I get that you didn't like this video for whatever reason. If you want me to do a video that you would like your way, you know, just contact me in the email in the, you know, the bio box or description below, and uh, we can talk about you sponsoring a video. Mm-hmm. I'll put you in contact with my agent, Todd. Absolutely. You know. <laughs> yeah. And if you, yeah. and, 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 you know, then that way you get a video you want. However, if you make another stupid comment on one of my videos, you know, uh, my podcast partner is going to go break your legs. That's right. Or worse. That's right. Yeah. You ever heard of a Prince Albert? <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> no, he's going to interview you. <laughs> going to give you one of the special manicures he does yep. uh well this you was know, a pretty good episode it just to book in that opening conversation i actually only had to go through with the hand thing twice oh well i mean that's how squeamish criminals really are yeah ah, no no <laughs> no nasty. don't hurt me um <laughs> and the, and, i'll tell you whatever you want and the worst the worst one was in a uh, really horrible country in Africa, uh, a guy that ran prostitutes. I would call him a pimp, but he was more of a slave trader. Uh, uh. We just told him what we were going to do, and he started crying and uh, <laughs> started, you know, spilling his guts. Like, yeah, you beat, mutilate, rape, and kill women. Yep. I just tell you, huh. I'm going to smack you upside the head and you start crying. Yep. Wow. Oh, my God. You are a coward. Yeah. So Most what we are. did was, well, I didn't do this, but another uh, couple of members of our group, you know, um, physically chastised him in front of some of those uh, victims of his. So mm-hmm. they learned what a coward he was. So. Hmm. That's nuts. <laughs> We never did get to so glad I... the truck conversation, but whatever. Oh, yeah. Well, let's hit on that real quick. I got one thing about cars I want to talk about, too. Go ahead. No, you go first. Well, you know, uh, now that we've been here, both of us, a year, and I've been here two years, we kind of got a more better feeling of what vehicles we actually need. Uh, mm-hmm. And the Sequoia is great. A little bit too big for her comfort. Um, so I'm probably going to get rid of it and get her a forerunner. And for a farm truck, I'm probably going to get an F-250 Ford, but still looking. Right on. Still looking. I want a so, used truck, but, you know, I want somebody else to so what? pay for the depreciation. Yeah. So then are you still going to keep your dump truck and that'll just be kind of like a... A, well, I'm going to get rid of the course. dump bed because it's uh, not structurally sound, and I don't feel yeah. like doing that much welding for something I'm not going to be using that often. So I'm going to take the dump bed yeah. off. I'm going to put a, another bed on it, and that is going to be the, I mean, the abuse truck. Yeah, yeah. And then gotcha. the F-250 can be my daily driver, and if I need to take my trailer to Texas and buy a piece of equipment, because I'm still looking for a bigger tractor or something else. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm casting a nationwide net because I want one of those unicorn yeah, yeah. deals. Yeah, that's gonna be exciting when you find it. 
Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, man. I love buying equipment, even if you don't need it. Like, like uh, honestly, as a hobby of mine, I always look at like old skid steers, backhoes. Sometimes, if I'm bored, I'm like, oh, I wonder what's for sale, you know. And I, I don't like the real big stuff. I like the stuff that's uh, that might be considered reasonable to, for a home, like an acreage person to own, right? Not necessarily the super tiny little backhoes, but those backhoes that are like, you know what, you could put this on a on a on a big gooseneck, and you could reasonably pull it with a one ton pickup truck. Yeah, you know anything I want, that uh, that you can move yourself. If I'm I like, get oh, a I mini that equipment, yeah, if I get a mini excavator, I want a uh, one in the eleven, twelve thousand pound range, nothing smaller. Okay, yeah, you know because I have yeah. rock here, and uh, you know I don't want to yeah. be fighting it all day. That's true. Yeah. I need the equipment to do the work for me. That's why I'm buying it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I'm still looking for, yeah, you I'm, know, it depends on what comes up first. A nice big backhoe uh, or a mini excavator, whichever one I can get come up with first. Uh, a backhoe yeah. would problem, even though it doesn't do every job good, it does a lot of jobs well enough. Yeah, um, yeah. Because... You can get forks for the backhoe, and you know, and they do lift a lot. So, mm-hmm. yeah. If my because I had a tract like a backhoe. Yeah, I saw um, that. That his thing was amazing. Yeah, if that had wheels, there's no way I would sell it. Um, and I need tracks. Tracks. I mean, <laughs> what's that? And I need one with tracks. Yeah. yeah. Like tracks are. They're hard. I mean, I mean, the newer ones, if you've got rubber tracks or something, that's a different story. But these ones, like, I either needed to cork them, which is where you weld, like, the slats on them so they actually have some grip. Because this thing was kind of useless. Like, if it was muddy and I was trying to go up a hill, it, it didn't always want to go. And then in the wintertime, if there's, like, like, like hard-packed snow or anything like that, or, like, in the springtime, it, it wouldn't go anywhere. I mean, I had to, like, push it along with a bucket. Uh, unless of course I corked the tracks, but I didn't want to do that because then now if I drive it across my drive it across the driveway, you're just gonna chew it all up and stuff. But if that thing had wheels, there's no way on earth I would have kept it. But that thing also was pretty heavy duty; like it it could move a lot of stuff. I was impressed with that. Um, felt like you're I don't know like on an old sitting on a washing machine riding down a mountain or something. It was so uncomfortable, man. It was like bone jarring every time you sat in it, but it was pretty cool. But yeah, whatever I get, I'm gonna have Ooh. to put an air ride seat in it. But yeah, just yeah, gonna have to. That's what to. I should have done. Yeah, it's hard on you, like like back problems with operators. Um, I was talking to my wife. We knew we know this guy. And she's like, why does he always have back problems? I'm like, because his entire life, he's probably about seventy now. I said his entire life, he's been a heavy equipment operator. And you go back to like 1980 and earlier, they didn't have these comfy seats and suspension stuff. I said, it's kind of a, a common thing. If you were a heavy equipment operator and, you know, in the 60s and stuff, you've got back problems now. Yeah. And it you didn't I mean? help. When I, was... I, it didn't help. I had back problems in the Air Force. And one of the uh, secondary jobs they give you for exercises, mine was what? Heavy equipment. Wow. Ugh. Yeah. And that oh, runway no equipment, kidding. good God. Oh, wow. Eh, anyway. That's crazy. Um, Yeah, so that'll be cool. Hey, when are you guys have a timeline on the, from the Forerunner? Like, is this something you guys just... Uh, it, I'm having issues with the stupid, 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 stupid Wells Fargo. Um, I have paid off 
four or five other vehicles in my existence early, you know, making large payoffs on it. And, mm-hmm. oh, no, Wells Fargo, they want every single bit of daily interest they can get out of you because you can make no payment greater than $4,999, and you can only have two pending at any one time. So if I'm trying oh, to wow. pay off uh, the Sequoia early, which I I did, but it took me a whole week to do it. Oh, wow. And now I gotta, I'm waiting on the title. So as soon as I get that, then I can, you know, just go – get a forerunner but yeah yeah i, mean, I can go get it today right it, just, well, it just doesn't make sense yeah yeah for sure well you know i had a, I had a weird idea and i was trying to look it up and there's not a lot of information on it but um there's this instagram account that i follow uh i think it's called like par boiling or something and it's all like car stuff cars motorbikes weird things like this one guy did this old old like like an early 80s uh monte carlo chevy monte carlo but he put like a four and and i've seen you've seen like those cars jacked up and uh, put on a truck frame and it looks just like total trash right like white trash yeah this one was done very well like it looked like it was a factory rally racing version of like this monte carlo or or a cutlass supreme or whatever the heck it was and i got thinking about like so i got a, a 2002 civic and it's getting out a little long in the tooth. I've got like, I don't know, 300, I think 320-some thousand kilometers on it. And uh, I'm, I love that car. I, I really do. And I'm like, okay, so we're looking like, we're looking at something like a 2018, 2019 Civic. And man, like right before, right before Christmas, I almost bought one. I'm like, let's just go. It's a, a private sale. Done. Boom. We'll buy this car. And I thought, oh, I don't, I don't want to sink like 20,000 bucks into a car, right? Like I just, ugh. and so anyways, I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep this car, but I want to do, I want to have some fun with it. So I was looking at either, I, if we didn't live here and we didn't have all the snow we have, I would, I would drop it down and just totally rice tune it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like my boys hate that. They're like, why the heck would you do that, dad? <laughs> you're not a teenager and you're not an Asian. <laughs> and it's like, well, I think, you know what? It, I've been in those cars and they perform and you drop those things down. You, you swap out the engine. I mean, you can have a very fun, it's like a, you can turn those cars into a go-kart, you yeah. know, but, but I thought I, I then I, I literally can't drive it for a lot of the time. And, you know, as long as that snow's not too deep, that is my preferred vehicle. Um, even more than my four by four truck, because a front wheel drive on that civic on icy road conditions and it's windy, that thing sticks better even than my 4x4. And I've got good tires, yada, yada. Those things are fantastic. But I was thinking about it, and this might be crazy, but I kind of want to lift my Civic a bit. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Like, at all. I mean, you live on a gravel road. Yeah. And I have no problems with the road. Like the, the county main, once a day, once a week, sorry, they're, they're up and down. Like I think they kind of, they grade our road too much because then it's all loose for my cycling that I want to do. I wish they'd let it pack down a bit, but I don't know. I was, I, and then I did an image search. I think mine's the sixth generation Civic. So I'm like sixth gen Civic lifted. And there's like nothing. I should maybe do sixth gen Civic Raleigh conversion or something for like a Raleigh racer. But if there's a way, and you know, I, I kind of think of it when I'm doing stuff like changing my tires and stuff and I've got the whole car on jacks. 
Man, I love that stance. And if you had that stance, if I could figure out, like, I don't know if it'd just be a matter of swapping out springs. Um, you'd have to do a lot of work in, in R&D, I think. But, you know, that and then put some bigger tires, not big, huge tires, but big, grippy tires on it. And then I'd need to, I'd need to do some serious upgrades to the, the engine because it's like the stock 1.7 liter. <laughs> I think it's got like a maybe 120 horsepower or something like that. But, oh, I, I think that might be fun. I don't know. Maybe maybe widen the stance a little bit, but <laughs> what do you think about that? It'd be crazy to have like a, a 2002 Civic that's like lifted and then wide, well, a wider stance. Not at all. And um, make it a video series on your channel. It's true. Because that's, that's a big true. thing right now, taking cars and doing lifts and diesel swaps yeah. and everything else. Yeah. I cannot I believe the number of muscle cars getting cummings engines right now i yeah, think i know a four <laughs> i'm like jesus yeah stop yeah yeah no I, I don't know i think it'd be kind of fun and then the, the one thing i was thinking if i start doing that um i think that'll really inspire my boys to get their trucks a little bit more under underway you know there's Absolutely. a certain sense where like they got their trucks and i can't do everything for them i don't i don't want to i want to do it with them so we'll go out there and i'll start them like okay do this and this Okay, well, I'm going to be in the garage. If you have any questions, you come grab me. But um, they kind of want to do it themselves, and I want them to learn. And, and the best way for them to learn is I can kind of explain it, and then you're going to put your hands on those tools, and you're going to undo everything. You know, you're going to see what it's like to undo all these things, and, okay, now this air hose is in the way. You know, now I've got to pull this radiator hose out and move this. That's the stuff you need to know, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, you, but I think if I, you do it yourself, then you know later. You get to know yeah. that. You get to know that vehicle. You get to know the way it feels, the way it sounds. Yeah. All the little things with it, you know, and and then your brain connects. Okay, I'm driving along, and suddenly I get a new vibration. Mm-hmm. You can kind of pinpoint in your head, oh, that might be in this area, and it might be this component. That's what I'll check first. Yeah, yeah. And also, you should get them to have their own YouTube channels and – uh, document this journey of restoring yeah, their truck. That's a good idea. Yeah, that's right. That's a good idea. I mean, they I mean, do it themselves. If they get, you know, ad revenue off of it, then, you know, it's piggy bank money. And exactly. sometimes not a, not a little bit. <laughs> and yeah. it seems like yep. uh, at least some kids on YouTube get a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And especially that stuff's fully, like, advertiser-friendly, right? You know, and you're knife making and there's certain people like, oh, that's too dangerous. And so you, you kind of shoot yourself in the foot. But, um, yeah, I know a lot of that stuff, anything outdoor, car related, anything that's not slightly offensive. You know, if you have politics, of course, you're not advertiser friendly unless you're on the right side of the politics. But, yeah, no, it'd be kind of fun to start start working on that. So I don't know. I'm toying with that idea. I'm trying to look into uh, what I would need to do to, to lift up. The number one thing, I think that the most expensive thing is power. I need more power if I'm going to put bigger wheels on. But anyways, I had that, I had the harebrained idea last night and I woke up this morning. I was still thinking about like, Oh, this could be fun. <laughs> but well, I gotta, I gotta wrap it up. Yep. Wife's got to take the kids into some music lessons and stuff like that. So cool yeah this has been a good podcast Todd I appreciate it other than the internet it was great yeah I think we should be able to stitch those recordings and make it seem seamless almost 
Right on. Thank you. Well, thank you everybody for listening. For listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do in, appreciate in it. In stereo. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We practice that off air. <laughs> right on. All right, man. Take care. Thank you folks for listening. Uh, don't be afraid to tell your friends you listen to our show and share it with them. <laughs> That's right. Don't be ashamed. It's nothing. Don't be ashamed. It's nothing that bad. <laughs> That's right. All right, guys. Talk to you later.